Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to SACPA. Ah, Settling down nicely. Thank you. My name's Dwayne Pendergast, and I'm your moderator today. I'll start with the usual procedural announcements. We're recording now, so please turn off your cell phones. Uh, Please check the payment basket to ensure that no one has forgotten the $11. SACP is a 48-year-old nonprofit association. We rely on membership fees. I should remind myself of that. And session attendees to continue our work. Memberships are available from Annalise, who was sitting at the controls here. Uh, We'd like to thank the University of Lethbridge and the Lethbridge Herald for their support and notice distribution. Country Kitchen Catering for hosting lunch so ably and for grandchildren. (laughs) Shaw TV for broadcasting our sessions. CKXU for live radio. That's why we're so precise in our timing. And other media for covering our events. And for any newcomers, I know we start with a 25 to 30 minute presentation. Then we have lunch, followed by a 30-minute question period, starting about 1 p.m. Now I'd like to introduce our speaker for today. Dr. Kent Peacock is a professor in and currently chair of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Lethbridge. He's spoken to SACPA before, sharing the podium with Cosmos Vucinos to talk about Alberta energy policy around a year or two ago. His research interests include logic and the philosophies of physics and ecology. He's devoted a lot of attention to climate change and sustainability, and what he saw on the Easter Islands gave him a new perspective. His talk is titled, Endgame on Easter Island, A Sign of Things to Come. Welcome to SACPA again, Dr. Peacock. Thank you very much, uh, Duane, and it's a pleasure to be back here again. Um, one small correction, I'm not actually chair of the philosophy department anymore. I stepped down from that a few, a few months ago, and it's a real, every time I feel a little bit too busy or something, I think of all the meetings I don't have to go to anymore, and all the reports I don't have to write now, and it makes me feel sort of fuzzy all over. So uh, anyway, it's very nice to be here. So, so there's, there's a... Endgame on Easter Island, a sign of things to come. Well, I'm, I'm going to mention some of these, these issues, but quite honestly, a lot of this is just going to be a travelogue of what I did last summer kind of thing. But there's some interesting implications behind it. The, the story here is that my son, Evan Peacock, who is a fine arts student at the, the university, applied for the Roloff Benny Foundation scholarship. And this is a scholarship given to fine arts students to travel to interesting places in the world and do photography. And, um, and his project was, um, I want to go to Easter Island with my dad, who talks about environmental things all the time, and, talk, and film my dad talking about 
sustainability and human destiny in the setting of Easter Island. And, I, and I, my first reaction was, you've got to be kidding. I'm not going to do that. But, but um, his, his, his mother said to me, yes, you are. So, uh, so anyway, he applied, and he got the, he got the grant, and, and so we went. And also our friend Dylan St. Jean, who's a, uh, a friend of, my, of, of Evan's, got a grant from Elperg as well. So, and Dylan's right there. Evan couldn't be here today because he's finishing a term paper. So... Um, so we're here, and, and so I guess we'll start off by thanking Roloff Benny Foundation and Elperg Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group for their support, which made the trip possible. Um, the, the airfare down there is not especially cheap, as you can imagine. And I'll tell you a little bit about the, the trip and so forth. Um, the first thing I was going to talk about is just a little bit about just the geography of the situation, because uh, you know, hopefully you'll find this interesting and I mean, I've talked to people who don't not quite sure where in the world Easter Island is and so forth. So pardon me if you already know all this, but I'll give you just a, a quick rundown. So here's a, a, a map that I borrowed from Wikipedia or something. Not a bad map. So here's Easter Island, uh, if you can see my laser pointer. So this indicates its position relative to South America. So there's Santiago, Chile. Here's Easter Island out here. This distance here from the island to the mainland is about 3,800 kilometers roughly the distance from Vancouver to Montreal. It's way out there. And, but astonishingly, and I didn't twig to this at first until I did some homework, it's almost due south of us here. So this little town here, Hangaroa, that's their main town, their only town, is almost due south of Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. It's two or three kilometers off dead center on Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. And Easter Island is actually in the same time zone as us. So the one thing we didn't have to worry about was jet lag. I mean, it's, it's a two-day trip to get there, and a grueling trip as it is, but, but um, same time zone. So just a very quick overview. So the whole thing, this is roughly 25 kilometers by roughly 15 kilometers. It's a little 160-something square kilometers. It's a little bit bigger than Lethbridge, you know, 20 30% bigger than Lethbridge. And when we were there, I mean, I've read a lot about it, but I was sort of surprised. It, it was bigger than I sort of psychologically expected it to be. Um, it's got a very rich topography. It's a, uh, an old volcanic island. There's a sort of volcanic hot spot there. Um, I don't think any of these volcanoes have been active for several hundred thousand years, uh, so it's pretty stable. But there's at least there's something like 150 volcanic cones all over the island, and most of the rocks are, are volcanic. Um, this particular point here, which we didn't get to, is the high point, so you can actually get a 360 of the whole island from there. Um, what you'll see, I don't know if you can make it out in this slightly fuzzy image here, but down here, this is the airport, and there's a, the, the runway there is absolutely gigantic. It's nearly four kilometers long. And the story behind the runway is that in the 1970s, uh, Easter Island was picked as an emergency landing site for the space shuttle. And so Uncle Sam went in there and expanded the airport, and there's this absolutely gigantic runway there, which was never used for the space shuttle, but any aircraft in the world can land on that runway. And... Um, so it, this is, there's, it's sort of a major tourist center. They have, uh, well, one figure I've heard, I don't know how reliable, is they get something like 85,000 tourists on the island a year. Um, sometimes people just go there to see the statues and the place, and, and, but often it's used as a, as a refueling stop. So flights going f further west to places like New Zealand or Tahiti will stop here to refuel as well. And... Um, so the, the Hangaroa, this little town here, is just bustling. It's just, you know, just people all over the place. And we were, remember, we were there in August, which is there February. So it's, 
Southern Hemisphere, right? So they, the, the, it's, it was the off-season for tourists, but really busy even then. And I gather it's just in, in their summer, it's just a madhouse. And, and, um, um, and then there's all kinds of hotels if you want. There, there's, there's a five-star hotel and all the way down to sort of backpacking hostels for students. We picked a kind of a mid-range hotel and turned out to really have been a very lucky choice because the manager of this hotel was uh, very, very knowledgeable and very helpful to, and uh, really you know, helped us find our way around. Um, the dominant language on the island is Spanish. Now, you can go there as, an, as a gring, where we're gringos. Gringos are English-speaking North Americans, right? And they don't make much distinction between Canadians and Americans and that. They're, we're all gringos, right? So, um, and unfortunately, I have no Spanish beyond saying, you know, buenos dias or things like that. So um, as a, being there for a few days as a tourist, it's okay. But if you were going to spend any time in the island, you absolutely would have to have some Spanish competency. There is also a, a local Polynesian language spoken there, which I don't know much about, and, but it's probably descended from the language used by the original inhabitants of the island. And I'll, as we go along, I'll tell you a bit more about the history, which is very dramatic and, and very tragic in many ways. Um, so all the way around the, the edge of the island are these, um, last, are these sites where there are the, the, the statues, which I'll, I'll show you lots of pictures in a second. Um, some of them have been restored. Most of them, most of them are, many of them are still lying face down in the dirt where they were pulled down centuries ago, uh, deliberately as far as we know for the most part. Um, these two volcanic cones here, um, that's their fresh water supply. So they, 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 their only source of fresh water is rainwater that accumulates in the volcanic cones. And um, I don't know exactly how they distribute it, but the, gen the general sense is that this is a very small, isolated place with very limited resources compared to what we would have available here. And they, they, they have to make do with what they have. Um, over here on this island, the flanks of this island here is a, is a quarry where they, they built most of the statues, not all, but most of them. And because there's a, a kind of volcanic rock there that's sort of very good for carving. So, so they, most of the, of the big statues were built in this quarry at, at this volcano here. And... Um, well, I'll just go ahead and show you some of, some of the other pictures, just give you more of a sense of it. So this is just the courtyard at the Hotel Manavai. If you go to Easter Island, I warmly recommend the Hotel Manavai. They're really nice to us. Um, this is the, uh, one of the complexes. So this is in the background here. That's Hungaroa. That's the little town. Um, that's, the, that's that big volcano at the uh, west end of the island. And this is uh, one of the, the complexes. Now... So these big platforms here are called ahu, and they're, they're sort of like gigantic ceremonial platforms that they erected the statues on. The statues are called moai, and uh, and um, the, the ahu themselves are, are very often very big, uh, amazing pieces of construction themselves. They're they're faced with huge slabs of volcanic rock, uh, very very precisely cut out and, and interlocked together. And again, all of these would have been face down for two or three hundred years, and these these have been restored, stood up again, repaired um, in the last. I'm not. I don't know exactly when they did this one, but in the last twenty to thirty years, um, and you get a sense of how big they are. But there's some that are much bigger that I'll I'll show you in a minute. Um, so this now, un unfortunately. Um, I didn't get good light on these two moai here, but the one in behind here, I don't know if you can make out, but this, this is one of the more dramatic ones back here. And it, Can anybody see that it has white eyes? Is that 
evident. It's it's sorry. It's yeah, when you when you photograph these things, you ha you have to get the exposure just right. You really have to photograph it with light on the faces, and and I didn't always succeed in doing that. There's Evan and, and Dylan, but th this one here is, is has a big um, the, these. They found that many of them they had put uh, used coconut uh, or coral to, for um, eyes, and and in in this one the, the eyes were restored. And it's a very scary-looking thing, actually, the sort of glaring down at you. What these moai actually were, for the most part, were totems of recently deceased prominent male ancestors. So what would happen was grandfather had maybe been a chieftain or assistant, chief assistant to the assistant chief or something like that, and grandfather would, would die, and then the, the, the clan would go to the statue-building clan and say, we need a statue, and they would say, moai which means, who's it for? So the word moai, it's, it's turned into a noun, but it's actually an interrogative. It means, who are these, who's this for? And then they, they would contract with the statue builders for a statue of grandfather, and it would be paid for in food. Right, so the, the clan who had ordered the statue would pay the, the statue builders, and obviously it would take several months for a team of workers to, they have to carve them out, they have to move them, stand them up. And, and so all these things had a, a cost that translated directly into food. And I've seen an estimate that at the height of the statue-building period, um, perhaps 25% of the island's food production went into building statues. And we'll talk about that as we go along, the significance of that. Okay, so now here's Evan and Dylan, and, and at this point... Uh, well, basically when we got there, it rained for three days, which was fine because we had to catch up on some sleep anyway. And then... <clears throat> and then when, when the weather cleared, we went on a couple of tours. So this is up at a place called Orongo, which is a small village at the southwest corner of the island um, overlooking the sea. And I'll show you another picture here. Um, this became the center of what was known as the Birdman cult. So th this picture just doesn't capture um, the, the sense of, of space that, that you actually get when you see this. But these two volcanic islands are just off the tip of the coast. And... Uh, in, the, in, the, in the sort of birdman ritual, what would happen was that they would all gather at this little village they'd built up on Arongo, which is right here, and then the young braves would swim out to these islands, climb the cliffs, get a, a bird's egg, put it, hold it in a certain way in their top knots, in their hair, and swim back. And the one, the one who made it back, because they lost a lot of guys doing this, the one who made it back... Uh, would his village would get to be um, the, the top village for that year or something? I, I don't know all the details of the, of the cults, and, and but this this birdman cult actually became their main religious activity after the uh, the statue culture collapsed, and we'll talk more about that. But you just when you're up there and you look down at those cliffs and you think, man, I'm not you're not going to get me swimming out there. That's no way. But uh, they did it. This is a uh, one of the little villages village houses at Arongo. They've been reconstructed in, in recent years because they were in ruins. But, uh, and, of course, you see lots of signs like that. The tourists are not allowed to go onto the Ahu or anywhere near the, the buildings and structures. This is the uh, crater at uh, Ranokau, which is the volcano at Arongo. Now, again, this picture doesn't really capture the, the, how vast this really is. It's huge. Um, and that's... Again, I would presume uh, their source of water. That's the rainwater that's accumulated in the crater. This is a shot that I took um, 
later the same day, I think, and this is from a place called Punapau, which is the quarry where the top knots were made. Or the, so, uh, sorry, I didn't mention that. Let me just go back a couple of slides here. To sorry, yeah, this guy here. I'll show you a couple of better ones. But that huge structure on the top of, this, of the moai's head is called the pokeo, or the, the top knot, and it's it's a separate item. It's made of a different kind of rock, which sort of a red. Scoria, as it's called, a red, relatively soft volcanic rock. And it symbolizes either a headdress of some sort or possibly their hair. And our guide actually called them top knots. And, and you, so we saw a couple of the local men. Well, they'll still actually grow their hair long and tie it up in a, a top knot like that. So it's possible that the pakeo actually just represent hair or they may re- represent some kind of headdress made perhaps out of feathers or something. And they, it's not really known for sure, but the... The pokeo are actually absolutely huge themselves. Some of them run up to 10 or 11 tons. How did they get them on top of the statues? Nobody has a clue. No. Um, well, of course, some people think it was aliens using anti-gravity or something, but uh, I didn't see any direct evidence for that. But anyway, um, but it's a, it is a, a, a mystery how, the, how they built, how they, well, what, what I was told was that they know very well how they were carved. That's well understood. They have a pretty good idea how to stand them up, although um, we're not sure that we're, they're using it by the methods they used to use. But they don't really know how they moved them from the quarry, often many kilometers, to their sites. So they built these ahu, and the, the statues were, were made up in the site up in the mountains, up on the mountain, and then moved by hand because they're all hand labor. They're, they had no draft animals, obviously no other source of power. Um, uh, no metal tools either. It's all done with Stone Age technology. And, I mean, no doubt, in, in, in the essence of it is somehow you get 300 strong guys and you carry it. But exactly how they did that is, is not clear. So, sorry, getting back to this image here. So that's at the quarry where the top knots were made. And I just took a panoramic view of the island. Uh, I guess I didn't get my exposure quite right, but it gives you a sense of, the, of what the island. You're looking roughly to the north here, or north, uh, yeah, north, north, northeast more or less, and uh, you can actually see they do, they have some agricultural fields, and, and there's been a pretty serious attempt to reforest some areas of the island as well. All of their original forest was completely stripped away. So by about the year 1650, um, as far as they could tell, there were no trees left, although the island was heavily forested when people first went there, um, and including one particular species of palm tree that was very, very good for uh, building outrigger canoes and, and, and possibly for rolling statues around. We don't know for sure. But um, due to a combination of slash and burden agriculture, soil erosion, um, the, the, some people think that the uh, the Polynesian people brought rats with them, which uh, ate the seeds and the saplings of the palm trees. Due to a number of factors, the island became totally deforested by about 1600 to 1650. And uh, at that point, their whole economy collapsed. They could no longer build their outrigger canoes, which allowed them to travel. Um, they could, uh, couldn't, and, and more to the point, they couldn't grow enough food. So their source of food in those times partially was grown on the island um, or caught on the island. There were several seri- species of seabirds that they, they subsisted on, and some of those have actually gone extinct too. So they wiped out some of the local birds, um, a whole bunch of the local plant life, and also when they could no longer build outrigger canoes, they could no longer go deep-sea fishing. 
they got a lot of protein from the sea, including porpoises. They actually ate fish and porpoises, and a lot of porpoise bones have been found in the rubbish middens. But that all stopped around 1600 or so because they couldn't go out to sea anymore. Um, also, during, during their statue period, when they were still able to build things, they were not actually as isolated as I'd, I'd ever thought, and I think most people uh, believe. They still maintained contact with Polynesian islands further to the west, and uh, because they, the Polynesians were amazing navigators. They, they built outrigger canoes, and um, they sailed all over the Pacific. I mean, they populated the whole South Pacific um, over a period of about 3,000 years. And, um, you know, they, the, 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 I mean, the, near, the, the, the very nearest land to Easter Island is Pitcairn Island, which is something like 1,800 kilometers to the west from, from the island. And yet this was kind of, all, I won't say all in a day's work, but this was... They, they could do that. Uh, apparently the winter was a better time for sailing because the currents were more favorable then. But they used a combination of currents and wind. Um, they, one, of the, one of the things I was told about was that, you know, they'd look very closely at the, at the flights of uh, migrating birds. And if you see all the birds flying in a certain direction, you think, oh, there might be land over there. And you go, and that's possibly how they discovered the island. So it's believed the first settlements of the island Again, I've heard several versions from different scholars as to when the island was sort of first permanently settled, anywhere from 400 A.D. to 1200 A.D. I mean, you know, when was it? We don't know for sure. Um, I'm, I'm personally inclined to guess a little on an earlier, toward the earlier dates, but we don't know for sure. There's some evidence of human uh, contact on the island as much as 3,000 years ago. And apparently they've actually found evidence to suggest that there might, it might have been visited possibly by the Chinese and by the Norse as well. Um, but they, again, they don't know for sure. So there's a great deal about the history of the island that is sh- still shrouded in mystery. And uh, if there's one thing I sure learned there about after being there and is, is to, you know, temper your pronouncements about the island. And, you know, less is known than we realize, actually. So anyway, there's the quarry. Now, th- these are uh, seven uh, uh, moai, which I was told represent seven Polynesian kings, uh, and sort of built in honor of these kings, possibly. And these all face westward out to sea. And, and most of the moai actually are built on the, uh, on the platform. So the platform, the ahu, was built very close to the shore, and the moai would be facing inward. So they, you, had, you would have... The, the platform, and then you would have um, the little village for that particular clan, and then grandfa- there's grandfather sort of glaring down on, on, the, on the village. So to some extent, um, possibly, and this is speculation, uh, possibly the, the purpose of the Moai may have been to sort of maintain the continuity of ancestral authority or something, because there's grandfather looking at you to make sure you're still, still doing the right sorts of things. So it wasn't just religious, and uh, although had a religious angle as well. Okay, so now, here, this is one of the most amazing sites I've ever seen in my life. This is a, another location called Ahu Tongariki, which is around on the um, southeast end of the island. There's a huge bay here, and this picture doesn't come anywhere close to capturing the sense of this vastness. I mean, I, I will always remember this. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen when I was traveling is this site. You see these little people here? That gives you some sense of how big the Moai are. Right? These, these are the, the biggest ones. They're sometimes called the 15. 
And I'll show you another picture of the 15 here in a second, but they're, they're absolutely huge. Now, again, like all the other moai, they had been pulled down. It was done deliberately in most cases, apparently. Pulled down face first, often with the intention of breaking their necks, right, um, in the course of inter-clan rivalry after the culture collapsed. Um, but, in the, but, there, but in the 1990s, um, a whole bunch of people got together. There was uh, support from Japan and I think the government of Chile and some other places, and they went in and re- repaired and restored the 15 here. They, they brought in Japan, donated a big truck crane to, to stand them up, so they, they didn't try, even think of trying to do this by hand. And these, So these were all restored around 1996, 98, somewhere in there. I'll show you another shot. So I, that's a better shot I got from the front. And remember, these things are, you know, from the ground to the, to the top of the head, we're looking 40, 50, 60, probably even 55 feet high. They're just huge, right? And, and, um, you just, and there, there's one that, with his top knot. Um, apparently, some of these others had top knots as well, but they didn't try and put them back on again. And, and I heard it was just very, very hard to get the top knots back on, even using, you know, modern heavy equipment, right? It's just so... So, so how did they do this? Good question. Now this, again, another very dramatic site. This is in the quarry. This gigantic moai here was never finished. All right? 21 meters long, estimated weight over 250 tons, which made it oh, three times the size. Those ones on the previous slide ran up about 80 tons, 10 meters in length, roughly. And remember, again, this is all done by hand labor. Okay. But it shows you how they built them. So they, they, they carved out all the way around. So they carved them in the round, pretty much completely in the ground. And they were still, you can see here, they're still attached to the bedrock with little keels or fins of rock. And then when they're ready to move them, they would put loose rocks and probably timbers and so forth underneath it, chip out the last bits, and then I guess you get 300 strong guys and pick it up. Right? Um, and um, the, sto- now the story we heard from the guide is that According to oral tradition, it was this particular statue you're looking at that caused the that triggered the collapse of the statue building culture. Right? So we're probably talking somewhere around maybe 1550 to 1600 in the Western calendar. And the stories, the people just said, we're not doing this anymore. They, they, apparently they were afraid that workers might get trapped underneath this one when, when they tried to cut it loose. And that triggered a series of violent revolts around the island. So because essentially what had happened, and this is a, interest, a very interesting story, is that as the island became more and more ecologically depleted, so the trees are disappearing, the birds are disappearing, the soil is eroding, they, melt, they built bigger and bigger statues. They kept getting... So those huge ones that we saw, the Tongariki, probably among the more recently constructed, they're probably between five and 600 years old when they were first built, right? And... But they, they just kept making them bigger and bigger until it essentially triggered a, a violent wave of collapse all the way around the island. The whole, the whole system just went kaboom and collapsed. And then they were reduced to sort of a subsistence ecology. So I just got a few more pictures. This, this particular moai, I believe, is, was raised by uh, Thor Heyerdahl, a famous explorer in the 1950s, and they actually used just muscle power. They tried to use traditional techniques. And that's a f- medium-sized one. It's pretty big, but it's a medium-sized one. This is another one that, that my son took. And I, and I just thought this was, I, I'm not sure the exact location, but I just thought it was a really interesting image. I just call it the thoughtful moai because it's, 
you know, some of the fa- some of the faces are, have really they're they're not all the same, you know, and they have some of them really show some human character. I mean, that, that's an interesting face, you know. That's you know, um, this is one that one that has not been restored yet, so you can see it's lying face down. This is at a place called uh, Tapito Kura, and this this particular one is estimated to be the tallest one that was ever erected. And there's its there's its top knot lying there, it was around 11 tons. And uh, we were told that they were hoping to actually restore this one this year. So they're going to have to rebuild the Ahu, which you can see is pretty much just rubble, and then repair the statue, stand it up again. They're going to need heavy equipment. And so don't have a lot more time left. Just This is the famous magnetic rock, the, the navel of the world. Um, it was supposedly brought by the first king who settled the island. Um, there's Evan with a manavai. A manavai is a little rock shelter they build to shield plants from the, the wind and the salt spray. And fine, second last shot of here's at the airport when we're leaving and emphasizing how dependent they are on petroleum, how dependent they are on the modern society. This 767 here, that's what we flew out on. Uh, I asked, it, cal- it takes between 35 and 40,000 liters of jet fuel for it to fly back to San Diego each trip. So, and that's, that's what keeps them going, right? Um, I'm just going to sk- skip some of the t- talk here. We can get into, into the question period and give you the last, the last uh, picture I had, which is a little overexposed, but it turned out to be a good shot anyway. This is that uh, huge one by Ahu Tahai with the, with, the, with the sort of the white eyes and the sunset behind it. And then, of course, the question, the huge question about Easter Island is, are we just doing the same thing? Uh, one thing that I think is very important is that we should not uh, condescend or look down on the islanders and say, oh, why, why, did, why did they cut all their trees down? Didn't they know any better? Um, well, perhaps if we were being a bit wiser in our own choices, we could, we could do that. But they were, just, they were just human beings trying to do what they had to do to survive and have some kind of a life on this tiny island uh, in this incredibly isolated situation. And yeah, did they make some mistakes? Perhaps they did. Uh, but they were, in a sense, just caught in the trap of what it takes to survive what's needed to survive. And, and, um, and we have to treat them with enormous respect and, uh, you know, maybe learn from them so that, you know, maybe 2,000 years from now, somebody isn't giving a luncheon somewhere and saying, why didn't those people back in... Canada. Why didn't? Why did they do that? Why didn't they figure it out? Okay. So, okay. So um, now there's lots more, and I think we'll have a, a question period where I'll, the, I've barely begun to tell you some of the stories I heard, but that, we can get into some of the, that in the question period, I guess.